I'm Douglas Brush, and you're listening to Cybersecurity Interviews. Cybersecurity Interviews is the weekly podcast dedicated to digging into the minds of the influencers, thought leaders, and individuals who shape the cybersecurity industry. I discover what motivates them, explore their journey in cybersecurity, and discuss where they think the industry is going. The show lets listeners learn from the experts' stories and hear their opinions on what works and doesn't in cybersecurity. Hello and welcome to episode 97 of Cybersecurity Interviews. In this episode, we're speaking with H.D. Moore. H.D. is the founder and CEO of Rumble Network Discovery, a platform designed to make asset inventory quick and easy by combining active scanning with innovative research. Prior to starting Rumble, H.D. was best known as the founder of the Metasploit Project, the foremost open-source exploit development framework, and continued to be as a prolific researcher and occasional speaker at security events. In this episode, we discuss starting with BBESs back in the day, starting the Metasploit Project, Project Sonar, his development of Rumble Networks, securing home networks, fingerprinting networks, using jump boxes and IoT networks, and so much more. I hope you enjoyed this episode as much as I did. Thanks for listening. All right, H.D. Moore, how are you today? Thanks for joining me in Cybersecurity Interviews. Uh, pretty good, thanks. Thanks for having me. Uh, and you're based out of uh, Austin, correct? That's right, yeah. Yeah, you've been down there for some time. Actually, you know, going back, I mean, how how many years have you been at the uh, cybersecurity game? It seems like you're one of the early founders, so to speak. <laughs> I'm not sure if it counts as cybersecurity back then, but I got started kind of in the early to mid-90s, mostly with BBSs, uh, you know, word dialing, things like that. Um, and so from, you know, from there, I mean, how did it lead up to really, you know, what I think most people kind of know you for is from the Metasploit project? Yeah, sure. Um, so kind of what got me into security was this whole idea of exploring the unknown, this kind of like crazy electronic jungle we've been building out of all of our computers, out of all of our networks, uh, our telephones, our wireless, our internet, everything else in between. Just the idea of kind of uh, being able to explore this huge global network has always kind of drawn me into um, security and uh, discovery and scanning and from there kind of into exploitation and security work. Um, I kind of got my start there on the word dialing side where, you know, if you knew any 10 numbers, you could dial it and arrive at, you know, who knows what kind of system, right? You would just pick a random number out of the air and all of a sudden there's a prompt in front of you for, you know, a prime OS system or some crazy BBS you've never seen before. Um, that same mentality kind of led me to doing lots of internet wide scanning. Once I actually had, you know, dial up connections, like full TCP IP, it was great. Um, started writing internet scanners back then for things like FTP servers, SMB services, um, just kind of looking at the crazy file shares out there, finding all kinds of strange corporate stuff exposed directly to the internet back then. Um, and eventually that led into um, a lot of you know security work, security analysis stuff. And finally, um, I actually got a job doing this stuff. So back in late 90s, um, I had a job with CSE working for the DoD. Uh, from there, we took some of the people that were on the team and started uh, kind of my first company uh, down in San Antonio, Texas. Spent about five and a half years there. Uh, while I was there, I was helping kind of build out our MSSP offering, write the villain scanner, manage the pen test team. Um, and one of the things that jumped out back then was, you know, our tools are terrible. Um, this is back in the day when there weren't really professional security tools. They're just, you know, hacker tools that people use professionally. Um, and so, you know, most of the exploits that the teams were using at this point were stuff they found on the internet someplace that oftentimes they had very different syntax for each tool. They would crash a lot. They would have very limited payloads. Um, and that kind of led to building Metasploit, which is let's have a, you know, vetted set of exploits we can use for our team going forward. And 
it worked well enough and became this kind of cool modular thing where you can kind of plug an encoder to a NOP to an exploit to a payload to uh, all this other fun stuff um, that it became kind of a, a wider project and a bigger project and you know went well beyond our team and became kind of the thing it is today. Yeah, and at a certain point, you you actually <clears throat> were able to as as I think as most founders dream in some uh, point or another say, okay, yeah, we got acquired, and you went and were able to kind of really bring it to a, a very large logo as far as Rapid Seven. How was that transition going from something that was, you know, kind of a grassroots to a certain degree, but, you know, as a Metasploit project and open source tool to seeing it kind of evolve into this commercial tool? Oh, it's an interesting path. I mean, I feel like it's still not quite a commercial tool. The Rap7 team does a great job. I mean, the, the guys are on that team, the girls on that team are still doing an amazing job of, of you know, driving the community effort behind it, of trying to make it a community project to start with. Uh, but kind of going back to the early days of it, the, the employer I had in the early 2000s wasn't a big fan of Metasploit. Um, their clients were definitely not a fan of Metasploit. They didn't want my name anywhere near it. They didn't want some of our clients to even know that I work there. Uh, it was bad enough that, you know, we had some of our uh, partners threatening to not work with us if they kept employing me. So it was an uphill battle from the very early on. Um, we had folks saying I was going to go to jail. We had people trying to prosecute me. Uh, we had customers and vendors and partners that absolutely hated the fact that we were releasing exploits and making them public. So you would kind of take it for granted these days that exploits are what we do for pen testing, what we do for uh, security analysis. But back then, this was really controversial. And it wasn't just the corporations that hated it. It was the actual you know, old school hackers hated it. They're like, why are you making it easy for people to break into stuff? This is terrible. And so in a lot of ways, it was fighting against both the old guard and fighting against the software industry uh, to get Metasploit to be this thing that people would accept as the norm. Um, so my... One accomplishment I'm actually proud of for the Metasploit project is, you know, it's great that it's a community project. We got lots of stuff. It, it went a long way. It's still actually being used. But what it really did was it changed the standards for what's normal in security as far as using exploits. And I feel like that's probably the biggest accomplishment by far. There were things like, you know, of course, there's PacketStorm. There's lots of other exploit sites, exploit DB, and so on. But I think Metasploit had the uh, most impact on policy going forward as far as making exploits kind of a standard toolkit for doing security work. Yeah, I think there was that, it was kind of an unfortunate mentality, I think, for a lot of people for so long of saying, well, if you put this out in the wild, everybody's going to use it. And the argument I think that many of us came to realize was that, no, it's probably already out there. Like, you're, you're not, not ever, there's things that are discovered. If there's a vulnerability, you have to assume it's been either been researched or compromised at some point. All we're doing is shedding light on what's possibly already a known issue. Yeah, we saw that really change it's around 2004, 2005, uh, as it related to like browser exploits for folks who are, you know, being compromised through the web browser, through the PDF readers, things like that. That's really where things turned the corner. And that's where it went from, you know, most of the time Metasploit was kind of keeping even with what the, um, you know, criminals were doing out there. But, you know, around 2005 or so, we really started to see a huge surge ahead of criminals leveraging exploits to make money and to, you know, steal things and so on. And at that point, Metasploit has just been chasing to try to keep up with that curve. Um, so Metasploit was usually behind that stuff by, you know, a month, three months in some cases. Um, and it really helped, one, change the mindset of folks because they realized like, hey, you know, <laughs> Metasploit's helping us test out this thing that's already actively being exploited. Um, but I think that really helped kind of turn the corner as far as uh, how people view exploits for sure. And a lot of it comes, you know, from that the, the industry maturity too, of where you know ethical hacking, white hat hacking, pen testing became. Oh yeah, this is something that 
heck, we see it in, in, in regulations now. Like you've required or contracts, you must do a pen test once a year. <laughs> um, it, it's kind of an interesting thing where it's become a business thing because people want to be able to say, well, show me, you know, show me how this can be done. And to be able to do something that's modular and say, well, look, this is, this is how this attack can happen. Here's a simulation. People go, oh, wow, okay, so we need to do these patches. And it became incredibly valuable and still is. It's just it still seems odd at times that people don't fully appreciate that ability to be demonstrative of these problems to then have to therefore fix them. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're getting there. It's just taking time and kind of going back to your question about community versus, uh, you know, the wraps up and acquisition, all that. Um, so the first company I worked for when I started working on Metasploit really didn't like having Metasploit attached to them. They never mentioned it anywhere. It was never publicly connected to the company in any form. Um, by the time I went on to kind of my second startup, uh, Breaking Point, they actually liked it. They thought it was a good thing to have and good expertise to have as part of the product. So I kind of went back and forth. Like a lot of the stuff that I worked on in Metasploit, we take that forward and bring it into the breaking point products. Um, and it was really a great resource for us to build a product much faster to help, you know, use stuff that we've already worked on the techniques we already had. So breaking point is very complimentary to what we're doing. And it was great to have that. Um, but again, it wasn't a commercial project. We were the only, um, all of our, you know, company expenses, if you want to call them that from Metasploit, which were just, you know, uh, conference travel, things like that. We're paying for that by doing training on the side. So I take two weeks of vacation and train almost every single day of that vacation per year uh, to be able to cover all of our other expenses, get things running, you know, run programs, all that stuff. So um, it was uh, quite a lot of work because basically having two, two, you know, two full-time jobs, really my day job at a startup and then doing Metasploit full-time. So when I had the opportunity to work with Rap7 and we eventually got to the point where acquisition made sense, um, the goal there really was let's make Metasploit a bigger and better thing. I think early on in 2009, we had about 33,000 active users downloading Metasploit framework. Um, this is still version three, I want to say um, an early three version, maybe 3.1, 3.2 or something like that. Um, by the time, uh, you know, about six months after the Metasploit, sorry, after the Metasploit acquisition by Rapid7, I think we're up to like 150,000 users. So in a lot of ways, um, Metasploit definitely helped Rapid7 get a lot more visibility back then because they were kind of the um, dark horse in a lot of vulnerability management space. But at the same time, uh, Rap7 let Metasploit a ton of credibility in the corporate space. So we had a lot of new users who were using Metasploit for the first time because they saw it was being run by a you know, major corporation. Um, and that was a big deal. So it actually was a really great fit because they provided credibility on the corporate side. We provided them credibility on the security and exploitation side. And that dovetailed really well. And you know, even today, these guys are doing a great job of maintaining the platform. Yeah, it's, you know, it's, I think it's maybe it's a nuance that I think a lot of folks um, maybe on the security operations side and, and publicly, I would say more don't necessarily always understand that. Yes, there's vulnerabilities. Uh, not every vulnerability has an exploit. Not everything has levels of severity um, that match to something. So it's nice to be able to say, okay, well, here's our identified vulnerabilities. Here are the potential exploits that are out there and let's weigh the risk. And it puts it into that risk-based conversation that I think more organizations should be having, but might not necessarily. So have you... How, how do you feel that now that you've kind of evolved into doing some more stuff and maybe you can talk a little bit about Rumble as doing maybe a more broader base on that and maybe just actually just jump right into Rumble and how you're trying to tell that story? Oh, sure. There's kind of a middle step there, which is after, um, you know, Metasploit was kind of this big thriving community and we had our first round of commercial products to use Metasploit Engine, Metasploit Pro at Rapid7. That was kind of paying the bills and making sure that the team was self-sustaining. Um, I stepped out of running Metasploit day to day and started running uh, the research team there. And so we did a lot of fun projects and I kind of went back to my first love, which is scanning the internet, like discovery. Like we got to the point that we're scanning 
every IP on the internet continuously almost every day and covering a ton of protocols. And the best thing is we were just giving that data away and they still do. Um, that data set's called uh, Project Sonar and it's still you know free to download. So if you want to see like what every SMB server on the server on the internet looks like, or every web server on the internet looks like, or every DNS name that they could resolve, um, it's a huge, awesome data source to, to dig into it and play with and do mapping and do analysis, do correlations. Um, it's underappreciated by far. I feel like this, there's really interesting things that you can do with that data set that aren't really been, being done yet today. But and being able to one gather that data in a way that didn't get us prosecuted was a big deal. We do quite a bit of lobbying and work with a lot of lawmakers and deal with um, a lot of very angry um, network operators who didn't like the fact that we were scanning them every day. Now, of course, this is all normal. Like everyone scans everything all the time. It's gotten to the point there's so much background noise that people don't even bother complaining anymore. So that was another project where it really was about getting visibility of the internet. How do we measure this giant amorphous, constantly changing blob that is the global internet? Um, and that kind of led to what I'm doing these days, which is working on a network discovery product. Um, it's you know not open source, unfortunately, or at least not yet. Um, but the idea is that it's um, a cloud-based asset discovery. You can install one agent somewhere in an environment. You can use that as kind of a scan engine and then run discovery scans across your environment. It doesn't require passwords, no credentials of any sort. Um, it can do all kinds of fun things like identify MAC addresses remotely. Um, pull topology information out of neighboring ARP caches. It can dump MAC tables on switches, enumerate your routes, look at your layer two topology, um, you know, create your port mappings, all kinds of fun stuff. So we have customers all across the board who are using it between you know, universities, state governments, uh, large enterprise, all the way into clinical environments, uh, medical centers, uh, hospital networks, everything else. So the goal behind Rumble really was to build a platform that makes it easy to identify what's connected to your network and safe enough that you can scan everything without knocking anything over. And that meant building, you know, a custom scan engine from scratch, uh, making a lot of decisions a lot differently than you would if you were writing a vulnerability scanner or a security scanner. Um, so it's a lot of fun. So I, I could talk about Rumble and network discovery and fingerprinting forever, but uh, that's <laughs> where I'm at now. Well, that's what I was gonna, was gonna dive into. I mean, yeah, the fingerprinting of what's out there. I mean, look, we've all anybody that's done any type of um, security assessment have gone in, and you know, you always ask for that. Well, you know, give me your your subnet ranges, your IP blocks, whatever. And they're always like, yeah, you're not gonna find anything more than this many things whatever it is and sure enough it's usually like three or four times and they're always like oh yeah we forgot that we had all this and it's it still kind of comes down to that basic problem of just asset inventory is the crux of what we seem to find out you know working on the data breach side it's always oh yeah that server we forgot about got popped um so it's it really just giving that visibility why do you think it's still such a, a base problem like something that we still have to have this this hard being such a hard problem to solve um, I mean, you kind of hit the points there, which is that a lot of folks don't know what they have, and a lot of the security compromises happen in those gray areas that you're not actually monitoring. Um, you know, I'm still doing active pen tests these days. I work with the trade as partners, um, get involved there with uh, our normal, you know, billable pen test work. And oftentimes we break in using systems that weren't part of the existing scope. So we ended up discovering the scope during the gig, getting the customer to approve them, say, yes, we actually own that, and then breaking in through those systems because they weren't something that they were tracking before. Um, we're seeing a lot of companies get much better at vulnerability management, at patching, at segmentation, all that stuff, but only for what they know about. The stuff they don't know about, obviously, they can't manage, they can't patch, they can't track. So um, there's a big gap still between what people know they have and how they're protected and then everything else. And there's a lot of reasons about uh, how companies get there. Um, the biggest one that really drives it is M&A. It's acquisitions. It's uh, companies evolving over time. It's partnerships being created. It's vendor relationships. Uh, every time you bring in a third-party vendor, they've got their own vendor-managed appliance. They've got you know VP, VPN connections to their appliance back to their site, which creates all kinds of weird, interesting routing issues and um, exposures internally. 
Um, especially in healthcare, you see a lot of acquisitions where a hospital network will acquire, you know, a bunch of clinics and they end up having to connect their networks together, but they do so without having a lot of visibility into what they're connecting. And then, you know, they don't have really any visibility on that remote site until it's already part of their network. And it could be the IT team that was part of it, set up that other network. They're no longer there anymore. They've been replaced by the central IT team. Um, so between IT turnover, between M&A, um, there's just a lot of scenarios where uh, things kind of fall between the cracks and it's really hard to keep a handle on them. Yeah, it's and I, I think um, it becomes a greater challenge now, or at least I'm seeing it with, you know, remote workforces. You know, now it's like, well, now we have these home assets that are tying back in and they say, okay, just just give somebody remote access. What's the big deal? They we need they need to be able to work. You know, we're COVID enforced. Um, are you seeing an uptake in that where organizations are saying, Oh geez, you know, we kinda had things segmented and now all of a sudden we have all these endpoints that we really don't know a lot about. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I was working with one of our Rumble customers recently, and they're looking at, um, so one of the things that Rumble does is it'll identify multi-homed assets. Uh, so it's going to determine whether a machine has more than one IP and what that second IP is oftentimes. Uh, and it does that either by doing unique correlation, so finding a unique fingerprint for that asset and then finding it in more than one IP, or by querying that asset directly and finding ways to leak multiple IPs out of it. So for example, you use MDNS, you can use HTTP services, TLS, NetBIOS, or EDP. All those services can leak additional IP addresses out of them. And if you do a little bit of analysis and correlation, you can realize, hey, this device is actually bridging network A to network B. Um, where that gets really interesting, obviously, like if you've got someone inside your enterprise network and they've got an LTE card connecting out to a cellular network or they're VPNing out to something else, oftentimes we can identify those secondary interfaces and flag them as being, hey, there's a direct internet connection to the core of your network happening right now on this laptop. But what's interesting is when you start looking into uh, VPN environments, often what happens is companies will set up a VPN subnet and all the VPN users will connect to that subnet. But those users are also bridging to their home networks. Those home networks are also being bridged to who knows what, right? They don't know how secure the access points are, how physically secure that laptop is. Is it sitting on a you know a patio with people walking by in the street? You know, It's all over the map. So one of the really cool things we did was for a company that recently moved to work from home as their primary um, uh, workforce, uh, we we're looking at the multi-homed um, addresses of all their VPN users coming in and seeing how they all cross-connect in the back end. And it was nuts. They're, at one estimate, they had like a thousand different entry points into their corporate network just because of their VPN users. Wow. <laughs> I, and yeah, it's, it's, it makes sense. So, I mean, are, what's the response when you make that kind of discovery towards it? Are they, do they freak out? I mean, how, how do you get them to say, okay, let's take a pause here and breath and then figure out maybe a solution? Uh, I mean, it kind of starts off with like, okay, is this data real? <laughs> That's usually the first one. <laughs> right. like, yeah, this is right. This looks really crazy. You sure this is like what's actually happening? Like, yeah, yeah, this is actually what it is. And they say, okay, great. Now what? And usually it comes down to segmentation, isolation, going to kind of the beyond beyond corp security model. Um, and that's one of the trends that's really been that one of the trends that we take advantage of on the Rumble side is we have a lot of folks who are moving to hardened internal networks where everything is basically external. They treat the internal network just like an access point, just like a coffee shop. Um, there's no real privileges that are gained just by being part of the corporate network. Um, and as a result, you're seeing a lot of hardened machines. You're seeing machines with less ports and less services being exposed. Um, you're seeing you know, lots of BYDs up being brought in. Lots of home users are bringing their home equipment into corporate environments now because they do treat the network that way. Um, the flip side is they're not quite ready for it yet. And all your normal discovery tools, all your standard IT asset inventory tools, they usually depend on having Active Directory or LDAP uh, or SSH access to be able to authenticate all those devices, figure out what they are. Once they lose authenticated access to those systems, they can't tell you anything about them anymore. 
So that's kind of the, the whole goal behind what we do at Rumble is unauthenticated discovery. And it's hard because you can't just go query and say, hey, what OS are you? You have to do it the hard way. You have to go figure out you know, 10 different data points and then correlate them together and have an expert rule engine and all that fun stuff. So um, we try to push a lot of that back into the open source community. There's a Wrap7 open source project called Recog that drives the fingerprinting for Metasploit, Metasploit Pro, and Expos. Um, we also contribute back to that on the Rumble side. So almost all the fingerprints that we do in Rumble go straight back into this uh, very uh, openly licensed uh, repository uh, called Recog. And so we definitely can encourage folks who do network scanning, network inventory work to uh, contribute to that repository and make use of their own tools. Yeah, I mean, that, that, that's fascinating to me, the fingerprinting of it, you know, from everything from latency of pain. I just, I can't even imagine the undertaking of, of trying to figure that out. Um, how many people do you have kind of really doing that? So you have some of the folks in the app, open source community, but how, how many people have to really kind of work on doing those kind of fingerprinting engines to really get it to a point where you have a level of confidence? Oh, that's a good question. Um, so the thing about the Recog database is it started off being Nexpose's internal fingerprint database back in 2012 or so, 2013. And 2013, when I was at Rapid7, we made that project open source and called it Recog. And then we made Metasploit Framework, Metasploit Pro use the same thing. Mm -hmm. So we'd already been sitting on you know 13 years of previous work by the Nexpose team that we kind of just you know, tore out from in an internal repo and made public. Um, and the cool thing about that repo is then we took all the active scanning data we did for Project Sonar. So we've been scanning the internet for you know, years at that point, we went through all those fingerprints, all those banners that we pulled from all those services, you know, billions and billions of records. And we ran through and figured out which ones were most common that weren't being fingerprinted. And then we just filled in all the gaps. So that database is great because it's, it's basically, it was built from starting off with the, you know, Nexpo's product base, but then it was tuned using all the project sonar data um, to really expand its coverage for everything else internet facing. And now that we've been using it with Rumble, we're able to um, also backfill all those fingerprints and increase the coverage for things that are mostly internal facing. Um, so between RAP7 team, the Nexpose team, Metasploit team, and now the Rumble side, um, it's one of the best databases out there. And it's, you know, under like, I want to say like MIT or BSD style license. It's wide open. Very interesting. So, you know, when, when you look at things like, you know, cloud assets, how are you treating those differently or possibly the same? Uh, for the most part, I don't bother with them too much. Most of the Rumble customers are internal. So we mostly do internal. You know, large internal corporate networks, big sprawling, complicated segmented things, uh, oil and gas, energy transmission, clinical. Um, if you look at it from the external point of view, the challenge really is there's no one answer for a given server. Um, but there's some cool tricks you can do with that. You can say, uh, like one of the projects we worked on recently on the Rumble side was creating this grid view, uh, kind of like the old school tone look, wire dollar look, where every IP is a little dot on a giant grid. And one of the neat things about that is you look at an entire external internet segment, and you say, okay, great. Show me everything that matches this fingerprint. Now show me everything that doesn't match that fingerprint. You can clear all the noise out. Then you start to see all the things that pop out as being different. So in one case, um, if you look at the subnet 157.157.00/16, which is uh, in Iceland for the most part, um, what you'll see there's a whole lot of uh, Huawei home broadband uh, gateways exposed. But if you clear all the ones that match just the broadband gateway, like the fingerprint match, the highest fingerprint match of those assets was no longer the home gateway. It was something else. Then you start to find all the weird stuff, all the systems out there that have port forwards to their internal NAS devices, uh, DVRs being exposed directly to the internet, um, Sony televisions that have uh, UPnP port mappings that they create on their own. So um, even though doing cloud and internet side fingerprinting is really difficult because of things like port forwarding, um, you can use the fact that fingerprints don't match as a really good classifier to find things that are outliers. So I would imagine that one of one of the values of you know that and I'm going to kind of throw a softball up here, but you know finding things like particularly some of the environments you talked talked about, but industrial control systems and IoT devices, things that are, you know, people plug in and might not really have a good way of doing that kind of asset inventory. I would imagine things like that start popping out. 
Definitely. Um, the challenge with a lot of those platforms is people have been scared to scan them forever. So if you look at most <laughs> networks, ICS networks, they're like, well, we can't use MAP and knock things over. I'm like, yeah, that's why we wrote Rumble. Like, I mean, MAP is great, but there's some uh, TCP IP stack stuff that it does that some devices still don't like. And granted, a lot, of, a lot of the fears of using MAP overblown these days. Most devices are more resilient than that. But we definitely took the approach of let's be better safe than sorry and start from scratch and build like the most boring analytical scan engine ever that all it does is send valid traffic and do lots and lots of analysis on the, on the results. Um, so what we find is a lot of those networks have only been, um, well, let me step back. Most solutions for asset discovery on uh, you know non-IT networks have been using passive discovery. Um, and there's a huge market for that. You've got companies like Armis, you've got Clarity, you've got Senrio, all doing passive capture and then using passive capture to tell you what those devices are, how they connect to it, what they do. Um, that's great, but there's a lot of overhead in getting a passive tap installed in a core of someone else's network. And if you've got lots of you know, geographically diverse, like diverse sites, you've got like 50 different sites or 50 different wellheads you're trying to monitor, you can't put a passive network tab in each of those sites. It just doesn't work. Like, Either you're going to be spending tons of money or you don't have the infrastructure to run that or you can't even get the data back fast enough to process it. So that's the, kind of one of the reasons why we did the approach for active scanning and rumble is we feel like, you know, with the whole beyond court model, with the lack of credentials that people are running into, um, with these networks that are, you know, super, you know, scattered across the world um, and they're all segmented in different, different and weird ways, uh, passive analysis just doesn't work for a lot of them. And by the same token, authenticated analysis doesn't work either. So that's kind of why we're taking the approach that we do. Um, and as a result, we find a lot of weird stuff. And, you know, Knock on wood, today we haven't knocked over a single device. <laughs> That's good. Uh, you know, with, with things, you know, obviously there's, where do you feel, okay, maybe I'll phrase this a little bit different, you know, the fear of some of these things like IoT devices. I mean, where do you see some of the risks and or benefits of them? I think we talk a lot of times where folks are like, oh my God, it's going to be, you know, it's a toxic waste with inside of a network. Be like, okay, well, there's, it's, you know, if I'm not having to send somebody to maybe a dangerous site or, you know, the cost of monitoring something, it's it could be extremely valuable to the business. So how do you, how do you kind of balance out those concerns where having these discussions with the business? Uh, I feel like the, the, the efficiency uh, benefits of having remote monitor devices have already won. Like we're not, we're not going back at this point. <laughs> it's like, this is become the new normal. It's going to be much more common to have a remotely managed devices, um, uh, things backhauling over, you know, cellular, over VPN, over uh, IT, or sorry, over uh, various networkings coming back into your IT environment. Um, and I feel like this is just kind of the new normal. Um, there may be environments out there where people haven't done that yet for security concerns, but I can tell you the the scariest and most dangerous dangerous environments I see are still full of IoT devices that um, don't have much in the way of security. And so, what I mean, how do we solve that problem? I mean, does it does it come down? You know, there's been there's always the finger pointing of how they're managed, um, firmware updates. Can they even be updated? You know, hard coded passwords. I mean, is it is there you know, maybe a silver bullet solution that generally never is in security. But I mean, are, is there a common thread, I should say, um, in these things that you can say, well, geez, if we really kind of focused on these IOTs as this, we could maybe find a solution. Um, and what we saw today, uh, to date, what people do is segmentation. So they take, you know, whatever that OT network is, they splice it off into its own little network. They allow a management network to access that and they allow IT to access the management network. And so you're three or four levels in with the onion at that point to even talk to those devices. But if anyone ever gets on those device networks, it's a bloodbath. There's no way to protect anything. So what we're seeing um, in the last five years or so, it's, it's only been kind of a recent occurrence is folks moving towards uh, models where devices are updated much more frequently, uh, where firmware updates are not just a special occurrence, but something you expect to happen on a regular basis. 
The downside though is to be able to update the firmware on those devices, you need to be able to talk to them. You need, you know, you need number one bandwidth. You also need the ability to um, you know, interact with them quickly and monitor them and all that stuff. So a lot of the segmentation that folks are using to isolate their IoT devices is also becoming problematic for how you manage them and update them. Um, so I think we're starting to cross that chasm. We're starting to get to the point where folks are looking at their IoT as devices that need updates, need to be managed, need to have their passes rotated, they need to be hardened individually. You can't just put them all behind a wall and hope for the best. Definitely. Yeah, it's it seems like good old fashioned and you know, just there there's things built in the the OSI model that work for a reason. Uh you know, segmentation still works well. Um, but you know, we still run into problems, or at least what I've seen in assessments, that people have these very large flat networks, um, and they just say, Okay, you know, it's yeah, the the network overhead's not that bad. You know, how do how do you you know, wh- where do we where do we kind of get people to talk about that in more realistic terms say look this, again these are kind of the basic problems of inventory network segmentation getting them to adopt that i mean do they have to wait for a crisis first or is there are there ways that you found that you may be able to say you know there, there's this is a this is just good hygiene in general where they'll actually adopt it early on i don't think we're there yet uh, i think there's still way too many vendors who are making money on the problem uh and not enough really concerned about the solution yet so um, especially in the segmentation uh, space, you see a lot of vendors where a lot of the folks who are pushing things like SDN are doing it so they, they can do dy- dynamic filtering and dy- dynamic segmentation of devices that they don't want to expose. So if anything, there's more money being put into um, maintaining the problems and mitigating them than there is to actually solving them and come up with better solutions at this point. Um, there are some cool companies who are doing fun stuff in this space, like a company called Phosphorus. Uh, I'm a big fan of. They do uh, IoT patching and IoT password management and they tie back into like your CyberArk, your Vault, and things like that. So it's one of the first like actually useful uh, remediation management platforms I've seen for devices. That's that. Yeah, that makes sense. I mean, but I think you hit the nail on the head. It's like, we, we do have, I think a traditional thing with security is like, Ooh, let's, let's keep feeding the problem as opposed to really kind of follow the solution or, you know, the cliche of, you know, we'll treat the, we'll treat the symptoms as not the disease. You know, what, what, what would it take really for that to happen? Is it more regulation? Is it going to have to be something where we self-regulate better? Where, where do we kind of get things going in the right direction? Now it comes down to really vendor participation. Um, you know, if, if you look at it, if, let's say you have all of one particular type of device in your environment. So you mostly buy everything from, you know, Siemens or something like that. Um, there actually are pretty good tools within that product suite to manage updates, to patch things, to track them, to pull event logs. Like if you have a heter- like if you have a homogenous environment, it's pretty straightforward to monitor things and update and manage it. So if you have a great environment like that, you're you're probably okay. If you can use the vendor tool and kind of go up the vertical stack, and you can find decent security solutions that help you actually manage and maintain those things. Um, you know what we know is that reality is not so clean, and that everyone has a big mix of stuff. You've got your you know crazy high end PLC sitting over there right next to your like you know, Linksys router you bought 10 years ago that's just bridging a random network to another crappy switch. So it's, it's all over the map today. The problem is that there's not a lot of solutions out, out there on the IoT side that are multi-vendor solutions that are really designed to um, maintain security, your patch or monitor these different things. And it's a hard problem because everyone does updates differently. Everyone does mitigation differently. Um, so there's, there's not a lot of vendors out there that are doing a job of helping with um, kind of heterogeneous uh, IoT and device security outside of just putting them all behind a wall and monitoring them. Well, you know, do things like, you know, bug bounties kind of help where it kind of uh, monetizes folks say, okay, let's, let's attack problems. And, and here's a, here's a way to incentivize people to do it, to do more, uh, quite frankly, incentivize research. Oh, definitely. I mean, there's the, the good thing about bug bounties, the good thing about research in general is that it's causing 
all the new generations of products be a lot better. You're seeing more frequent firmware updates. You're seeing kind of vendors getting used to the fact that they actually have to maintain these devices more than a year or two after they built them. Um, unfortunately, that doesn't apply to anything legacy. So everything you bought that's more than two or three years old, good luck ever getting a security update for it ever again. I mean, that applies to our mobile phones just as much as it does to our PLCs. Um, there's a lot of devices out there that are basically abandoned wear after three years, um, and sometimes less than that. You're seeing uh, a lot of these IoT vendors, especially when the consumer space, consumer security products, uh, they abandon devices even quicker than that. Um, it's usually a big, you know, we're seeing some cases where uh, vendors are trying to discontinue a product and their user base revolts like the Sonos network audio devices lately. That was hilarious to watch because the vendor's like, hey, we're not going to do updates anymore with these devices. You can trade them in for a new device. And their whole user base went, no, we spent like thousands of dollars on these things. We're not going to just throw them away. Um, so they came back and said, okay, fine, we'll, we'll do security updates, but no features. Um, so I think we're getting there. We're getting this kind of push and pull of how long will uh, device manufacturers um, maintain existing products. Um, because from their perspective, they don't make money on old stuff, right? Like once there's no support contract, they're just having to maintain these things for free. They make money by selling you the newest shiny and that's it. So until we get away from the point where um, vendors are financially incentivized to only sell you the newest thing and abandon the old thing, it's going to be a hard problem to fix. And yeah, I think we'll get there. I think a combination of support contracts and uh, vendors just planning to have their hardware last longer would go a long way. Um, we've seen fo other folks take a modular approach, but we find out that um, even vendors with modular solutions, they tend to upgrade the hardware that drives the modularity just as fast as everything else. And they're still incompatible things two years later. So I think uh, it really just comes down to being more slow and steady with product updates and expecting your vendors to have a longer support lifetime for any device you buy in the future. Yeah, it always seems, you know, whether it's, it's part of the total cost of ownership, right? Where, where a lot of a lot of folks say, you know, what's this really going to cost in the long run? Because do, am I going to have to replace this in eighteen months? Uh, whether can anything from a cell phone to a, a network, you know, uh, router, you know, what is this going to cost as far as maintenance and support? Uh, seems to be something that we still don't articulate well. I would say, in security, you know, there's a lot of talk about your upfront cost, but what's the what's the total cost of ownership? To me, always seems to be something that you you, you never hear at, at, at different conferences when people are, are kind of pushing a lot of their wares. Exactly. And nobody wants to, I mean, the vendor doesn't want to charge you for support because it makes the total product much more expensive. Um, and if they don't charge you for support, they don't want to maintain it after a couple of years. So that's kind of where we're at. We either have to suck it up and have, you know, enterprise support pricing tied to uh, these devices um, or only work with vendors who are willing to do, you know, multi-year or, you know, multi-decade in some cases, support contracts. Gotcha. Well, I greatly appreciate you taking the time today. Where can uh, people find you online? Um, all my new work these days is rumble.run, just the website. Um, you know, I, we try to push all of our code back to GitHub uh, for things like fingerprinting. We'll hopefully have more open components going forward. We're sort of kind of a quasi like opposite of open core model where we open up our fingerprints. We don't have an open up our scan engine yet, but uh, definitely want to have more community interaction. Uh, Rumble's basically free to use for businesses, for home users, for everybody in between. We support up to 256 live assets per network, which lets you scan like a, a 1,024 assets at a time. Um, so we have a pretty generous free tier right now, especially with COVID. We want to do our best to help folks monitor their networks. Um, and yeah, we'd love your feedback on the product for sure. It's, it's a really tiny team here. We're just trying to get things off the ground and we have no investors. We have no funds. <laughs> We're just doing it from pocket scrappy as we can. So I'll be sure to put that in the network, uh, in the show notes. I'd, I'd say I ran, ran out of my home network. I, it does something what I really, really like in security, which is just lay out information in a readable, fast, digestible, uh, way. So that, that's some feedback that I can definitely say, keep doing it because when there's a lot of noise, sometimes just hearing the signals, uh, is incredibly valuable. <laughs> 
<laughs> awesome. Thank you. Appreciate that. Yeah. We just try to make things really, you know, as quick and easy as possible. Like here's your stuff. That's all we try to answer. We don't, we don't try to upsell you on security features. We don't have a, you know, kind of risk chart. There's no red, green, orange pie charts anywhere. It's literally just like, here's your stuff. Have fun. Well, that's great. All right. So I will be sure to put that all in the show notes. And I thank you so much for taking the time today. Oh, thanks. Have a good day. Thank you so much for joining us today on Cybersecurity Interviews. I hope that you enjoyed this interview as much as I did. Please go to cybersecurityinterviews.com where you can find every episode, including show notes and links for each guest. There you can also find social media links and to sign up for new episode notifications. Thanks. We'll talk soon.